I, I thought uh, I'd begin with a bit of a confession, as that is that I used to play a lot of chess when I was a child. Now, that might stun you. You might have thought I was doing all this cool stuff, and sure, I was, but I played, I played chess from primary school all the way through high school. I did competition chess, that nerdy. And, um, but one of the things that chess does for you is it teaches you to think three or four or five or six steps ahead. That's part of the way the game works. It's one of the reasons why I was, it didn't work that well, but I was keen that my boys learn how to play chess from an early age. They didn't take it up, but whatever. Um, because the, I thought, I really felt like it really had an impact. It meant that I was regularly thinking about the consequences of actions. And I remember, part of the confession bit is I remember in my late teens and early 20s, I resented it. I resented the fact that I'd always be thinking, yeah, but if I do this, then this is what's happened, and then that'll happen after that, and then it'll result in this, and no. Nah. And I remember at points feeling straitjacketed by that. I remember the fact that I was just always thinking about what the consequence would be, frustrating, because I'd see a lot of the stuff that my friends and w w were doing or whatever, and I thought, I'd just love to be able to just go, no, stuff it, that's what I'm going to do. And, and there was just something in me that wouldn't, right? That was foolish, wasn't it? See, self-discipline, self-control, the ability to delay gratification, the ability to not act on impulse but act with forethought and with insight, it might sometimes feel like straitjackets for our sinful hearts, but the truth is they're guardians, guardians watching over our souls. In many ways, wisdom and foolishness play with high stakes. Our well-being, our lives and ultimately our souls often have a lot to do with whether we are foolish or wise. And today we're going to focus on one area in particular where the wisdom of knowing the truth and being disciplined to live in light of it is going to guard the person who does it from a world of self-destruction and despair and regret. Now, we're up to Proverbs chapters 5 to 7, and if you look at the three chapters together, like we've got them on the screen, you're going to see that they form a little bit of a pattern, okay? So, they're bookended, the ends of this pattern are two warnings about the way, that the way of the adulteress leads to death, and um, inside of which are three instructions, the sort of pinky kind of one, um, on avoiding sexual indiscretion. And then in the middle, you get three examples of dangerous follies. The middle three stress who not to be, and the outer messages stress who not to be with. In the middle three, who not to be, out of three, who not to be with. But one of the things that they've all got in common is that they all highlight the dangers of folly. Without wisdom in the areas that it mentions, the consequence of folly is going to be deep and lasting regret. But the emphasis in these chapters is on the outer ends of that, right? The outer messages. The warnings against sexual waywardness are given by far the most time and the most weight. And it's not hard to hear the message that Solomon is trying to drive home. Have a look at um, how each of those five outside sections is introduced. This is on the screen on there. You see those things? This is how they were all introduced. It's what we learned last week. 
One of the key disciplines at the heart of wisdom is memory. It's remembering. Learning wisdom well and then remembering what you've learnt. Keeping it close to you so that you don't stumble into folly, but you see it coming and you steer clear from it. And five times you can see up there, Solomon's emphasising listening, paying attention, keeping close his wisdom on this one. Because the power of folly when it comes to sex is great. And the danger of such folly is equally great and real. And so for that reason, I've decided today to leave the three warnings in the middle to the podcast tomorrow. Um, because as much as being warned about being financially gullible, the warning, being warned against laziness, being warned against the consequences of being a schemer, as long as, while those things are all important, we live in a highly sexual culture where the prevailing message in the sexual realm is do what you want with whomever you want as long as they want it too. And that if you do that, you will find fulfilment and happiness. But the wisdom that God has for us is this, that could not be further from the truth. And because that voice in our culture is absolutely so overwhelmingly loud and dominant, even in it being taught to our children, proverb calls to listen to wisdom, it is as important as it has ever been. But before we kick in, there's one other important point that I want to make, and that's this. These are Solomon's instructions to his son. And so that's why he's warning all the way through it against falling for the temptations of the immoral woman. But the wisdom in these chapters is in every respect applicable to both men and women. Regardless of the gender of the one doing the tempting, regardless of the gender of the one being tempted or facing it, this wisdom applies. So let's focus in on the wisdom that's in chapter 5. Now, Solomon begins by stressing how important it is to listen. Be wise, lest you be fooled. My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Turn your ear to my words of insight. And what's the goal of doing that? Verse 2, that you may maintain discretion and your lips may preserve, literally guard, knowledge. So maintain discretion, guard, knowledge. So in other words, pay attention to wisdom so that you won't speak or act rashly, but instead you will always consider the consequences before you do anything. That's kind of what discretion is. And if you think about it, surely that is Wisdom 101. That's just, that's just absolutely fundamental, isn't it? Knowing actions have consequences. That is about as simple as it gets. Actions have consequences. Having your lips guard knowledge will protect you also from lips that will corrupt your knowledge, that will lead you astray. Verse 3. For the lips of the adulterous woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. Now, in the original language, there is not a small amount 
of sexual double meanings in these verses and I'm not going to get into them in this setting. But straight away, the father is highlighting very vividly the danger that he is keen for his son to avoid. That is the seductive, sweet-sounding, smooth and charming promises of the adulteress. Dripping honey, smoother than oil, so full of, of the promise of pleasure, so persuasive, so enticing. Over in chapter 7, Solomon describes the sort of thing that he's talking about. He describes this scene that he sees playing out on the street outside his home. Look at verses 13 to 21 of chapter 7. She took hold of him and kissed him. She talk, he starts a bit talking about this young guy who he sees just wandering aimlessly through the street just as night is starting to fall and he walks up out the front of this place. So she took hold of him and kissed him and with a brazen face she said, today I fulfilled my vows and I have food from my fellowship offering at home. And so I came out to meet you. I looked for you and have found you. I've covered my bed with coloured linens from Egypt. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes and cinnamon. Come, let's drink deeply of love till morning. Let's enjoy ourselves with love. My husband's not home. He's gone on a long journey. He took his purse filled with money and will not be home till full moon. And so with persuasive words, she led him astray. She seduced him with her smooth talk. Now, obviously, there's some cultural things that we go, all right, cinnamon on the bed, that's interesting. But, but, but you can see the idea is, is this, she flatters him, she reaches out for him, she was actually on the lookout for him and trying to do whatever she could to lure him in. And, you know, it's just as easy to take it into the 21st century and imagine a scene where a woman is being flattered by some confident man who is quite aware of his own abilities who smothers her with attention and, and perhaps she feels like she's not getting that kind of attention at home. Maybe he knows that she's not getting that sort of attention home and he's telling her how beautiful she is and so much more beautiful and intelligent than his wife and really they've just been drifting apart and, you know, he compliments her features and he makes her laugh and he speaks of his longing to be with her and to be close and offering, in fact, no pleading, come on, let me take you home. But wisdom needs to be able to see past the honeyed words. Wisdom doesn't get swept up in romantic fantasy because wisdom is guarding knowledge. Wisdom is maintaining discretion. It's not going to forget reality. It remembers that actions always have consequences, especially when it comes to adultery. Because the smooth words are an absolute illusion. Verse 4, but in the end, she's bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Now, in the original language, the word for edges, there, of edged sword, the word for edges is the same as the word for mouths, right? So, you can see the pun that, that Solomon is doing here, okay? So, you're talking about oily speech, smooth smooth speech, but in the end, that speech is going to be like getting stabbed with a sword for its sharpness. The words seem so honey sweet, but in the end, the experience is going to be like drinking poison. 
A taste of heaven is the promise, a pathway to hell is the reality. Verse 5 and 6, her feet go down to death, her steps lead straight to the grave. She gives no thought to the way of life, her paths wander aimlessly but she does not know it. And the message is you don't want this and you don't want her. She is straying towards her death and she doesn't even realise it. Don't you stray with her, is Solomon's message. Stay wise. Actions always have consequences. And so here is Solomon's wisdom when it comes to the one who is tempting you. Verses 7 and 8. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Do not turn aside from what I say. Keep to a path far from her. Do not go near the door of a house. Notice that he moves from son to sons, right? In other words, this is wisdom that is not just to his son, but for generations of sons after him. And verse 8 is about as simple and wise as you can get on the subject of resisting temptation. Keep to a path far from her, don't go near the door of a house. Is anyone here thinking of going on holiday to the Ukraine or Israel right now? Anyone got that on their plan for November? No, because it would be foolish, wouldn't it? What about Moldova or Belarus? Anyone going there? Or what about Lebanon or Syria? Is that your plan for November? No, not that either? No, because they're way too close to Ukraine and Israel, aren't they? New Zealand. Sounds good, especially after we beat them in the cricket. And so, do you offer to give a lift to the married person at work who you suspect might have a thing for you? Do you keep walking past his office to say hi? What about the girl at the gym who keeps flirting with you, or you suspect might be? Do you keep signing up for the same spin class? Do you keep doing your workouts at the same time of day that she's going to be there? Well, not if you're wise, you won't. You stay well clear. Ah, oh, but safe, I'm, I'm not going to do anything. Maybe, maybe not. But they might. Wisdom doesn't run the adultery gauntlet. Wisdom won't take that risk, but stay well clear. Because there are long-lasting, even generational consequences to the folly of adultery. Look at verse 9 and 10. Lest you lose your honour to others and your dignity to one who is cruel. Lest strangers feast on your wealth and your toil enrich the house of another. What's he talking about here? He's talking about the very real costs of adultery. For starters, there's just the cost, cost of the affair. I saw these stats, right, on a divorce lawyer's website in the US. Um, whatever. But anyway, it's in an article calling Committing Adultery, How Much It Will Cost You. So at least they're being upfront, right? And it's not talking about their own fees, which probably would be 
pretty significant as well. A study was done, basically, on, with people who had admitted to committing adultery. And so, according to the study, and I've converted this into Australian dollars, an adulterer spends $195 a month on hotels, $256 a month on dinner and drinks, $85 a month on gifts for his or her lover, that's a bit less than I thought, actually, um, $109 a month on date activities, and $57 a month on miscellaneous expenses. That's over $700 a month on adultery-related expenses. Try claiming that on your tax return. But this is just the tip of the cost of adultery iceberg. In our context, there's spousal support if divorce is the result. There's child support payments. There's the brokenness of your home. There's a loved one that you've permanently harmed. There's the estrangement of family and friends because adultery is going to go off like a hand grenade in your social world. Many people will never, ever speak to you again and it might even be your own children. Your reputation is often destroyed and there is emotional pain, guilt, shame, ongoing jealousy, substance abuse, venereal disease, loneliness... And you can work your guts out to make amends and still struggle to regain a shred of trust. And that is just the normal costs of adultery. For the adulterer, I haven't gotten on to what it's going to do to other people. That's what it does to you if you do it. That is what the adulterer can expect. And that's actually what the focus is here in Proverbs 5 to 7. It doesn't explore the ongoing havoc that such actions wreak on the lives of other people. A very real consequence might be payback when your adultery is discovered. And that is actually what I think Solomon has in mind in these verses here. If you sleep with another man's wife, he's not going to like you. He's going to want vengeance. You reverse the same thing too. You sleep with a woman's husband. That's what's going to happen. He might want to punch your face in. Probably will want to punch your face in. He might want to kill you. He might demand extortion payments to keep quiet. He might demand compensation. And in the ancient world, if he is more powerful than you, he might actually, and this happened, force you into lifelong slavery as the payment not to take your life, which the society would be okay with. And all of this is done to you without a shred of sympathy. Why should there be? And what's the consequence for that is your whole family line, hence the word sons, not son, your whole family line, the future of your children is put into jeopardy all because you wouldn't listen to wisdom and instead you listen to your lust or to the honeyed words of the seductress or the seducer. Actions have consequences. As Solomon says in chapter 6, can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burnt? Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? So is he who sleeps with another man's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. 
People don't despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his hunger when he's starving. And yet, if he's caught, he must pay sevenfold, though it costs him all the wealth of his house. But a man who commits adultery is no sense. Whoever does so destroys himself. Blows and disgrace are his lot, and his shame will never be wiped away. For jealousy arouses a husband's fury, and he will show no mercy when he takes revenge. And he will not accept any compensation, he will refuse a bribe, however great it is. See, that's the folly of adultery. If you think about it for five seconds, you should not do it. It's not nearly as exciting or as glamorous as it might have seemed when the journey began. And that is what Solomon points out back in chapter 5. More often than not, when adultery, what adultery leaves behind at the end of the day is regret. Deep, deep regret. Verse 11 to 14, at the end of your life, you will groan. And when your flesh and body are spent, you'll say, how I hated discipline, how my heart spurned correction. I would not obey my teachers or turn my ear to my instructors. And I was soon in serious trouble in the assembly of God's people. That's the folly. But there is a wisdom alternative. The wisdom of marriage and enjoying sex with your spouse. Now, I spared our Bible readers um, this awkward passage by having us read from chapter 6 instead, but we are going to look at it together. And as it will become obvious, it's really erotic. It's overtly erotic. And that's actually the point. The Bible is not anti-sex by any means. There is no Victorian era, just lie back and think of England type of prudish view of sex in the Bible. The Bible does not see sex as a necessary evil, but views sex as good and as a wonderful gift from God for the married, for them to enjoy. And God's wisdom is this, don't wander outside, wander at home. And it is delivered with a wink, although you can't see it in the text. Verse 15, drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. The second line in that poetry is amplifying the first. So the first line, drink water from your own cistern. You've got your own water supply, right? Drink from that, not from your neighbour's water supply. But then the second line enhances the meaning. Running water from your own well, it takes it and ups it a notch. See, a cistern is like a bulb-shaped facility that people would dig in the stone below their houses and it would serve as like a water tank. But a well digs down to the groundwater where, where the water is not still but is flowing and cool. A cistern is good, a well even better. And so the images, image moves from just making the point, hey, you've got your own water, and it adds, and your water supply is refreshing, and it is good, so enjoy it. 
And so wisdom poses a rhetorical question, verse 16 there, should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares? And the implied answer is, of course not. No, no. If you've got a cistern at home, a refreshing well in your house, why would you seek your water sources outside the home where anyone can drink from them? No. Cherish what is wonderfully and exclusively yours. Verse 17, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. And this is the beautiful intimacy of the biblical view of sex. It is for one man and one woman in lifelong union. And that union is founded and centred on faithful covenant love. Each committed to the other. Each exclusively belonging to the other. Free to spend a lifetime delighting in one another's bodies. That's what it's saying in verses 18 to 20. May your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. Actually, the word deer here is the word for mountain goat. Um, But that image might have been romantic 3,000 years ago. That might have gone... (laughs) Um, Not so much now. If you called your wife a mountain goat, it wouldn't go down well. May her breasts satisfy you always. May you be intoxicated with her love. See what I mean? This is erotic. Um, Why, my son, be intoxicated with another woman's wife? Why embrace the bosom of a wayward woman? It's pretty racy, isn't it? It's even steamier in the original language. Again, I'm not going there. Um, But for instance, I will go there in one bit. In instance, the word intoxicated there literally means going astray unconsciously going astray unconsciously. So, so what this is picturing for us is, is the idea of getting lost in the experience of making love with your spouse. Prudish? Hardly. Verses 18 and 19 actually are given in the language of a formal blessing. Did you notice that? It's a blessing. Proverbs is bestowing a sexual blessing on the son's marital relationship. And then it returns to the wisdom at hand. With someone so present, so wonderful to go astray with, why degrade yourself by going astray with the wife or husband of another? You know, there is this English language proverb that describes the seeming attractiveness of forbidden fruit. The grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. You know the one? Now, as we kind of says, we tend to see what others have or their situations as being desirable than than what we have at home. And it describes the human tendency to covet what your neighbour has. But, of course, the grass is not always greener on the other side. So let me put the wisdom of Proverbs 5 to the married person in this way. The grass is always greener where it is watered. 
That's where it's green. The grass is always greener where it is watered. The antidote to the wandering eye is to explore and keep exploring and valuing what you have at home. Discovering and perhaps rediscovering the wife or husband of your youth, the person who promised to you themselves, to the exclusion of all others, and you did the same to them, enjoying what is special to the two of you and the two of you alone in the whole world. That is where to invest your sexual energy in a place that is good and is right and is blessed by God explicitly. Don't wander outside, don't wander online, that's outside too. Wander at home. Now, before I move on, let me address a couple of questions that might be popping up in your mind. First, for the marrieds. What if the lawn is not as green as it could be? What might reinvesting in that aspect of your relationship mean? Well, there can be a wisdom in going back to the beginning and reminding yourselves of what marriage and sex within it is all about. It may be helpful for you to do a marriage enrichment course. Now, maybe read a book together, but it will certainly be helpful to talk about it as a couple together and to listen to each other without judgment and work on it together. Do the rediscovering together. Now, I do a fair bit of marriage prep for couples leading up to marriage, and of course, we cover this subject. And one of the things that we talk about is how to think about and talk about sex together as a couple. And so, um, um, Jeremy, you want to wave something? So what I've done is, I mean, normally, let me tell you, what happens in marriage prep stays in marriage prep, but this isn't. Um, uh, what I've done is I've printed off a handful of some of, just some of my thoughts on the matter that I give them every time um, that might be helpful. All right, don't worry, it's rated PG, maybe M. Um, it does relate with mature content. Um, but let me tell you, there is nothing R about it that would be inappropriate for someone at high school to read. Um, I've also printed plenty of them so that anyone should feel free to take one and to do so is not admission, admitting anything, all right? And you're just curious as to what Dave talks to people about at marriage prep, <laughs> okay? No judgments. It's just up the back there. There's a hundred of them. So if you see someone with one, you know, run their hand, no, there's nothing, right? It's just, <laughs> all right? Okay. Um, but what if you're not married? What if you're not married? Clearly, all of the teaching in Proverbs chapter 5 about the folly of committing adultery with someone else's spouse still applies 100% to the unmarried as it does to the married person, all right? But unlike the married person, the single person doesn't have a well to go home to. They don't have the option of enjoying their spouse as an antidote to that. So let me just make a couple of points about that. First is to acknowledge that it is a real challenge 
for single people living in a culture like ours that is so sexualized, but who want to honour God with their bodies and in particular honour His will that sexual activity be reserved for the marriage relationship. And they do that by conviction and their love of Jesus and their commitment to the Word of God. Those of us who are married need to hold in the highest regard our faithful, single, Christian brothers and sisters who persevere in honouring Christ in an immoral culture like ours. God certainly does. And what's more, the Bible is abundantly clear that the celibate life is just as good as the married one. It's pretty hard to argue otherwise when Jesus, Paul, John the Baptist and a whole bunch of others are all single people. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul says that, in his opinion, the single life's better and enables you to devote more of your energy to honour God more fully. And if life is all about seeking first the Kingdom of God, you've got a leg up. You don't have the divided attention that a married person does or someone with kids. Nevertheless, sexual abstinence outside of marriage is God's will for you if you're single and it is good. In fact, it is better for us not to have sex at all than to give ourselves away physically to someone that we are not prepared and haven't committed our lives to and who hasn't done that for us either. So yes, the single person needs to master sexual self-control even more than the married person does. We need to respect that. But there is blessing in remembrance that God made us and that God knows how we work, He knows how we are wired and He will look after us. And He's going to help us to honour Him. Remember that self-control is a gift of the Holy Spirit. But now we come to the end of chapter 5 and the warning again becomes deadly serious. Actions have consequences. And Solomon reminds his son of the most serious consequence of all those foolishly engaging in adultery or other kinds of sexual immorality might think themselves to be taking part in a covert tryst, a hidden affair, our little secret. For some, that's actually where half the excitement comes from, the spirit of adventure, the danger of getting caught. There is a piece of wisdom, however, that the wise will always keep in mind. And it may not be one of the more comfortable truths if you really ponder it, but it is a vitally important one. Verse 21, for your ways are in full view of the Lord, literally before His eyes. And He examines all your paths. The evil deeds of the wicked ensnare them. The cords of their sins hold them fast. For lack of discipline, they will die led astray by their own great folly. You know what that means? There's always someone in the room. There's always someone in the room. What happens in Vegas doesn't stay in Vegas. What happens on the work trip doesn't stay on the work trip. What you think no one knows, someone always knows. And what you think no one sees, is seen in perfect clarity and there will always be an accounting for it. And if not in this life, then in the next. 
because it is all in full view of the Lord. What have we repeatedly remind ourselves over the last couple of weeks? What did Josh go through with us earlier? That the beginning of wisdom is remembering in everything who my God is. But I'd like to now move us from the Old Testament to the New. So while Proverbs has stressed the wisdom of marital faithfulness, but especially, really, it's been highlighting the folly of adultery, the New Testament takes us to an even higher wisdom with higher stakes when it comes to sexual purity. The world might say, oh, as if God cares what people do in their bedrooms. You ever heard that? Uh, Yeah, he does, actually. I mean, he really, really does a great deal care about what happens in our bedrooms. The truth is actually that we're far more important than we think we are. And our bodies and what we do with them are far more important than we think they are. And sex is far more important than we think it is too. It is more than just a physical exchange. It is a relational and even spiritual one. A, A giving of oneself to another. Mutual ownership, becoming one. And God takes treating people that are precious to Him, including ourselves, cheaply, He takes that really seriously. He doesn't like those that are made in His image being devalued and degraded. And that's what He views sexual immorality as doing. When we take what He has made to be an expression of lifelong love and faithfulness and we exchange it with whoever or whatever and however... And especially when we intrude ourselves into someone else's relationship, God takes a very dim view of it, indeed. As 1 Corinthians 6 makes clear, those who sin in such a way will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do you want it plainer? And so the wisdom of Proverbs that reminds us that our ways are in full view of the Lord and He examines all our paths is well worth remembering, given what's at stake eternity. But for the Christian, 1 Corinthians 6 adds another factor, did you hear it? Our whole lives, including our bodies, belong to Jesus. He bought us with His blood. We're spiritually united with Him and sexual sin corrupts that too and it's it's bringing Jesus into our sin. We're temples of the Holy Spirit. Our bodies are made for honouring Christ And so to sin sexually is to sin against our own bodies as well as Him. So as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 13, the body is not meant for sexual immorality but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So you can see the message of the New Testament, it matches the old. In Proverbs we're told, what? Keep your paths far from her, don't go near the doorway of a house. And 1 Corinthians tells us, flee, flee from sexual immorality. God really cares about sex, but that's because God really cares about us. That's why. And that is also a precious comfort. There is not a Christian on this earth from adolescence onwards who has not sinned sexually, either in thought 
or in deep. There just isn't. And regret and guilt in this area can be powerful. And at times, it can feel overwhelming because it is so personal to us. But in Christ, God has shown us the deepest grace. He paid for all of our sin and he's made us new. The Christian, we're told in 1 Corinthians 6, has been washed, sanctified, justified, declared to be righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. And so we will inherit the kingdom of God if you've put your trust in Jesus. Wisdom is remembering in everything who my God is. And that means remembering even as we grieve our sin that our God is gracious and he will always love us because he has loved us in Jesus. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the gift of sex. Thank you that the human body is special and is to you and our marriages are special to you. Father, please strengthen them. Please draw those who are married closer together. Father, please strengthen your beloved servants who are single to stay faithful and honouring you with their bodies. And we pray that all of this might bring honour to our Lord Jesus who is so precious to us. And we pray in his name. Amen.